Thank you, Caleb. <laughs> Caleb was one of the young men I had the opportunity to do some coaching with. And uh, I'll have to say I learned as much from him as I may have shared with him. He's a talented young man, and so appreciate him. Well, <clears throat> thank you, Tom and the committee for inviting me to be here. It's been a while since I've been at General Assembly. Um, I'm old. Um, I'm retired. Been retired for several years. I retired from teaching seminary uh, a year ago. Um, uh, I was chairman of the National Outreach Committee long enough to be with three different stated clerks, which was kind of interesting, and all three of them were, were very different. So I've been blessed. So since I'm a retired teaching elder, and many of you may not know me, uh, I thought I'd just take a minute to further introduce myself and give, me some, give you some of my background. I've been married to my college sweetheart for 54 years. I, ref I refer to her as the other Holy Spirit in my life. She does a great job of convicting me. We have two adult children and nine grandchildren, ages 13 to 25. Our son was a church planner, and by the way, he is a he brews beer uh, as a ch church planner, so I, I understand what you were saying there. Um, our he coaches pastors and other leaders now. Our daughter and son live in Nashville, where he's a Christian singer-songwriter. Some of you have met him. Um, I started a ministry as a commissioned lay pastor in the 80s and was ordained in the EPC in the early 90s. Um, I actually authored the commissioned pastor role that we have now. I planted two interracial churches in Pittsburgh. As was said, I was the director of cross-cultural ministries for the CCO, uh, helping them become more diverse. Chaired the National Outreach Committee for nine years, did several church planning assessments, coached a few church planters. I also spent a month in South Africa with Bishop, Bishop Desmond Tutu and the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Had dinner with Mandela's cabinet, was supposed to have dinner with Mandela, but his plane was delayed in getting back into the country. I've been an adjunct seminary professor for 15 years, and I've authored a couple of books. But I want to spend our time sharing some thoughts on planning churches cross-culturally, especially, as was said, under, in underdeserved and under-resourced communities. And then I want to leave the bulk of our time for some Q&A and some dialogue amongst ourselves, because you don't want to hear me lecture for very long. So. But I often hear how impractical practical it is to have multicultural church or a multicultural faith-based nonprofit, especially when it comes to church planting. Those outsiders don't want to be a part of this. There are no, white, no whites around me. Besides, it's too much work and not enough money, and there are some more important priorities right now. I've heard it all before over the years. Mirroring the, we've mirrored the cultural pragmatism of today because it becomes our mode of operation. It's similar to the decade of the 90s when we are encouraged to plant churches in the newest and fastest growing neighborhoods with financial support from a mother church or a denomination using the homogeneous unit principle or Bob Logan's church planning toolkit. We just had the perspective of just add water and you'd have a fully sustainable church in three to four years. Well, you know that doesn't even work in the best of neighborhoods. <clears throat> Using the best of marketing and management methods, we fostered the megachurch movement with great evangelistic and kingdom-building zeal, maximum growth by forming uniform communities, and a hunger for that growth justified that initiative. But this practical and human dynamic brought about mostly human results with the unintended consequences of creating a kind of a consumeristic church culture. So as the challenge of engaging post-Christian culture with the gospel has increased and financial support has decreased, 
Starting new churches has become even more impractical. In 2019, according to LifeWay Research, around 3,000 churches were planted in the U.S., while 4,500 churches closed. 93% of churches today are not actively engaged in starting new churches, and with only 68% of new churches succeeding after five years, we're not even keeping up with the population growth. Ed Stetzer has said, church planning is slowing and church closures are growing. Yet most experts tell us planting new churches, and you guys know this, is still the most effective way to spread the gospel. And church plants tend to have a higher percentage of non-whites than established churches. But pragmatism still reigns. Well, as pragmatism go, Jeremiah was not a very practical prophet. While locked up in the king's courtyard, falsely accused of treason, he buys a field three and a half miles north of the city in his hometown of Anathoth, right in the middle of the Babylonian camp. Only days away from the city being plundered and the last group of people being carried off in exile, he purchases a field he would probably never see. Why? Well, for the most practical reasons. Jeremiah was convinced he was investing in the future project of God. He was giving a, a visible foothold for God's people to believe and act on God's promises. God said fields will again be bought and sold in this land ravaged by the Babylonians. Jeremiah was turning his beliefs into actions, a deliberate act of faith. In his revelation of Jesus, the Apostle John wrote, Your blood has ransomed a people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've caused them to become God's kingdom and his priests, and they will reign on the earth. This is the future project of God worth investing in. Working to make the word of God visible through a cross-cultural kingdom and the multi-ethnic discipleship of church planting. It's acting on the conviction that God will complete his promised work even when it seems impractical. And too often when Christian scripture and common sense don't line up, we prefer common sense. The problem with that is everybody has their own opinion about what common sense is. Virginia Owens, in her book, Eating Words, writes, I'm afraid that for us, the notion of doing anything to the glory of God has been swallowed up by the pragmatic concept. Peyton Jones, a trainer for the North American Mission Board and the founder of the New Breed Church Planning Network, encouraged churches planners to do this now, to reach those nobody is reaching by going where nobody is going and doing what nobody is doing. Let me say it again. Reach those nobody is reaching by going where nobody is going and doing what nobody is doing. Sounds a lot like Jeremiah's Anathoth and is seemingly impractical. Such a place and venture would take a great deal of faith in God's promises, a huge risk to engage with a culture that's been captured by the idols of today's marketplace. So to plant churches in our Anathoth, I suggest... We need church planners to be like the Bereans and the Iskarites, people trained and focused on the biblical text and the cultural context. In Acts 17, Luke contrasts the people of Berea with those of Thessalonica, who had stirred up a riot against Paul and Silas because they preached Christ. For the Bereans, however, the Bible was their filter. They tested Paul's word by God's word and found that they lined up. 
You see, before we can move to any aspect of cultural assessment, we need to be Bereans. The Word of God is the place to begin or even talk about church and cross-cultural mission. It, all spe- it <clears throat> always speaks with greater clarity and truth than we ever could because it is Holy Spirit-inspired. The Bible speaks today with surprising immediacy. While we are constantly trying to find relevance, the Bible is eternally relevant. As C.S. Lewis wrote, all that is not eternal is eternal, eternally out of date. So we should ask ourselves, do we need a, another book on mission or church planning, which can be valuable, or rather, should we be more attentive to the book we already have? Secondly, we should follow the example of the Issacharites from 1 Corinthians 12.32 and understanding the times. You're familiar with that scripture. You don't hear a lot about the tribe of Issachar. They seem relatively unimportant, but are described as ones who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. There's little known about them. They understood the times, and we should not read too much into the phrase, that phrase as if they were a team of missiological specialists. Some surmise that they were scholars, but what's important to know is that they not just understood the biblical text, they understood their context. You may have heard the story of, a, of an old man who was casually walking along a country road with his dog and his mule, and suddenly a speeding pickup truck came around the corner, knocking the man, his mule, and his dog into the ditch. The old man decided to sue the driver of the truck, seeking to recoup the cost of his damages. When the old man was on the stand, the counsel for the defense cross-examined the man by asking a simple question. I want you to answer yes or no to the following question. Did you or did you not say at the time of the accident that you were perfectly fine? And the man said, well, me and my dog and my mule were walking along the road, and the counsel for the defense said, stop, stop. I asked you to tell me yes or no. Did you say you were perfectly fine at the time of the accident? Well, me and my dog and my mule were walking along the road, and the defense attorney again appealed to the judge. Your Honor, he said, the man's not answering the question. Would you please insist that he answer the question? The judge said, well, he obviously wants to tell us something, so let him speak. So the man said, well, me and my dog and my mule were walking along the road, and this truck came along the corner far too fast and knocked us into the ditch. The driver stopped, got out of his truck, saw my dad's dog was badly injured, went back to his truck, got his rifle, and he shot it. And he said to the, then he saw that my mule had a broken leg, and so he shot it. And then he said, how are you? And I said, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> it's important to listen and learn and understand the whole context of the times we live in, especially to plant churches cross-culturally. We, especially as members of the dominant culture, which most of us are, are here, can't assume we know the whole story of those whose lives are different than us. We've got to spend time to know and get to hear and get people the chance to tell their story. And we can become too impatient with that process. If we're passionate for the people and the culture of the Anathos where God has sent us or wants to send us, if we love them as he does, we will be motivated to listen learn and understand the times. Unfortunately, we could be more in love with our tradition, our methodology, and people who look like us than we are with our mission field. In the neighborhoods where I lived and pastored for nearly four decades, if I observed a a young hooded black man standing on a street corner with a cell phone 
exchange something through a car window, there is a sensible pragmatism that a drug deal went down. I could be wrong, but, however, if I then formed a judgment that all hooded black men standing on a street corner with a cell phone are drug dealers, I've crossed a line into a sinful prejudice. That line's not always clear, but that nonetheless it's real, and God sees it even if I don't. Even Nathaniel crossed that line when he, when he posed his rhetorical question about Jesus. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel had taken a sensible pragmatism that the Messiah could not come from Nazareth and turned it into a sinful prejudice based on his negative view of Nazareth. He didn't ask if the Messiah could actually come from Nazareth. He questions whether anything good at all can come from there. When we talk about planting churches in underserved communities, we have to have that attitude. We can't just say, oh, that, that poor place. Philip doesn't argue with Nathaniel. He simply says, come and see. In other words, give this man a chance. Judge him by his glory and not by his group. Or as Martin Luther King Jr. said, judge him by the content of his character, not by the color of skin, nor by his economic status, his educational level, or his external appearance. This rings true for both people and places. You see, we all have to admit we have hidden preferences and prejudice, some we're not even aware of. The most practical thing we can do in the Christian life is to act on the promises of God, even when all the evidence reveals its impracticality. God has promised to build his multi-ethnic kingdom, and that defies the pragmatism of this world. But participating in it defines the glory of God. So where are I, Anathos, today? Where is the neighborhood, the town, the city, or people group and capped in an unbelieving culture, making it impractical and uncomfortable to plant a church. Wherever that may be, God is already there at work, waiting for his glory to be revealed. So I just want to spend some time about talking about where are those anathos. Maybe some of you are already there. Share some of the challenges and struggles you have uh, for that place that, that, that seems to be completely uh, under the influence of our culture today. It could be a people group, it could be the poor neighborhood, it could be the black neighborhood, Hispanic neighborhood, it could be just a, a rural neighborhood, any place that's difficult to plant a church. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the impracticality of that. How can we overcome some of those things? What are the impractical things today? Finances, I know, is one of them. But let's just have a dialogue amongst ourselves. This is what I do well, is just to kind of facilitate a discussion and dialogue. So. So let's talk about it. Questions? Input? Thoughts? Hey, Roger, you, you intentionally planted an interracial church. Yeah. And so I want to know why did you do it, how did you do it, and how would you tell someone who's thinking about that today? Yeah. That's a good introductional question. Um, I was just convict, convic, uh, convicted by the scriptures I just read in Revelation 5, Revelation 7. This is what the kingdom of God is going to look like at the end of the story. Why shouldn't we, as churches, be resembling some of that? And we've not done that well. Um, when I first came into the denomination, our church plant and Military Avenue were the only two churches in the denomination that resembled anything like what we're talking about. So I was convicted by it. Um, fortunately, we had a, a church, North Park EPC, 
wanted to plant a church. They had no vision or understanding of planting one in the inner city, but they put enough faith in God and trust in me that they went ahead and supported us. Um, uh, so we, we, we started, and we soon found God's uh, wonderful hand in all of this because we were looking at a very working poor neighborhood that was moving from working poor white to African-Americans moving in. They had started disassembling many of the housing projects that blacks were living in and were given Section 8 vouchers. And this particular neighborhood had a lot of affordable rentals. And so it was not a community that was real happy about that transition, but we were started a church in that exact place and time. And just in coincidence, the church had a church loan fund that you could borrow up to $50,000 for a building. Do they still have that? Yeah, yeah okay. And we found it. <laughs> That's right. Do a lot, most people don't know about that, right? Yeah, there's a fund, that, there's a fund in the EPC that is designated for first-time yep. building purchases, and it's at an incredibly low interest rate. And I think it's got to be... Uh, Ten years was our... With the Presbytery as well. Yeah, yes. But, Presbytery yeah. had to approve we that. Can, we can find out more. Yeah, but anyway, so that's what we did. And when we found that out, this is a true story. Within weeks, I got a phone call from a group who had just left a church building and was trying to sell it for $50,000. So we were pretty convinced that that's where we were and what we were supposed to do. <laughs> So that's how I got, got started in it. But it took a credible amount of, I would say the biggest thing, I think it's church planning in general, but certainly if you're going to go into un, underserved communities, you've got to be very intentional about the things you're going to do and be intentional about going for it for the long, long haul. So I don't know if that answers the... Did you live in that area? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, now what would you say to someone today? Because that was what... Well, you knew you 19, for 19 so yeah, <laughs> yes, early 90s, 91, yeah. Um, we had already uh, moved into the north side of Pittsburgh but we, before we knew exactly the neighborhood where we were going to plant a church. And within a couple of years, we moved into the immediate area where we started the church, yeah. It's what's the other good thing about it. You can also find affordable housing in those kind of communities. Yes? Very good question. <clears throat> I spent some time working with the African American community to get to know people. And again, God's providence, a lot of prayer. Um, the word got out that we were interested in planning a. In Pittsburgh, it's pretty much black and white. The, the, it's less than 2% for Asian and Hispanics in Pittsburgh. So we had let this word get out. And uh, we were trying to do this, and I got a knock on the door, and there was this heavy set, very, very black African American person who said, I, I, I heard you're wanting to plant a church. Well, I'm a Pentecostal pastor interested in church planting. And so we talked for weeks, and we had to work through the theological issues. Um, uh, and he was willing to submit to a more reformed perspective. He was also a worship leader. Um, he'd been ordained in the Church of God in Christ. Um, and so he started out as our par partner. He grew up on the north side of where we were planning the church. So he had a lot of 
connections. Um, one of the first things we did is we made sure that we had an African-American uh, usher at the front door when people came in. We worked hard at getting a mixed race uh, uh, worship team, which it's, uh, you, we think it's pretty easy to find lots of black musicians. Yes and no. There's plenty of talent out there, but they're getting paid big bucks to be in the black church and to come and be a part of what we were doing was a, was, was a challenge, but we eventually uh, found some folks, and so our worship team was about 50-50. We didn't start out with a high percentage of blacks attending, but we had structured things in such a way that people, when they came, could see themselves in some kind of leader, people themselves in their leadership. And as Sean talked about, we committed ourselves to having our first group of elders be black and white. So we started with two elders, one white and one black, but it took us uh, about five or six years before we could find that um, black elder. And we, we did get a little pushback from, may I say, the GA office. Not a presbytery or our, our mother church, but yeah. Because we weren't, it was delaying our becoming a, a, a particular church. Yeah. So that's, that's a very important aspect. Whether, whatever the, the multi-whatever you're trying to do is you've got to have people, uh, indigenous people, a part of that leadership. And so get that organized even before you start. Yeah. Other questions? Or input, just input. Lots. You guys are seasoned folks. Question. So I'm assuming that in Pittsburgh, in the north side, there were already, there were some established black churches mm -hmm. during this time. Mm -hmm. What was your approach to uh, building relationships with them, yeah. making sure that you weren't a threat to their culture? Before we started, I spent a lot of time knocking on doors and talking with especially black pastors. I found it, I didn't think I was going to get this, but I found a tremendous amount of reception. Um, they were like the white pastors there in the north side. They're like, there's plenty of room. You know, we, we had lots, there were lots of churches, but they weren't all full of people. There was one big mega church, Allegheny Center Alliance. Um, but there were just, there were probably 25 or 30 churches in the north side of Pittsburgh, black, white, um, uh, uh, tall, a few tall steeple churches, but they were all open. No one felt threatened. Maybe it was because they thought I was crazy and we probably wouldn't be able to do what we're talking about doing. I have no idea, but... But they weren't, they weren't threatened. And so building those relationships with those black pastors paid off. Yeah. When we had our, we had our first shooting, 14-year-old kid got shot in a gang shooting. This was in the early 90s when Pitt, Pittsburgh, the gang thing was going crazy. Um, Crips and the Bloods had come in. They, we, were, we were behind what was going on in California. And we knew that we were not going to be able to hold the size of the funeral. So the, one of the black pastors offered their church for us to come and have that, that funeral. And so <clears throat> I, I would, I, this white pastor did my first funeral with this huge congregation of all black folks. And we had to contact the police because what was happening with the gangs, they would come in and tip over the, the uh, casket uh, for kids who had been shot, the opposing gang. So I looked out over there and it was 95% black people and a handful of our whites that were there and police officers outside the church. So that was a challenging time. But building relationships with the, the pastors who were, were different. Yeah, very important. 
Thank you. Other, yes? How long you stayed in that church plant? Yep. I was there for almost 19 years, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, my wife and I finally got diagnosed with PTSD, and we needed to take a, a time off. I was, for about a, about a year, I had become the director of cross-cultural ministries for the CCO, so it was overlapping. So I was just out for one year before our, our stated clerk, Dean Weaver, who was a very, very close friend, convinced me to plant another church with that. Uh, my wife wasn't real happy about that, but she went along. Um, so yeah, it was about 18, 18, almost 19 years. Yeah, yeah. And then you planted a second church. Yeah, and that was in, I was in downtown Pittsburgh. Yeah. Talk to us about what you did different to Well, there are two different contexts. For one, we still were intentional to be interracial. So we did many of the same things, got people involved that were going to be African-American. We were focused in on a college community, a downtown college. Uh, so that was a little bit different, different context. Um, when I, it was a challenge because getting space in a downtown city, even in Pittsburgh, was really challenging. We moved about three or four different times. So I was there just, just over four years. And about two years after I left, it didn't make it. We, when I left, we had about 90 people attending. Um, but we, there were some internal issues I won't go in through with a, with a worship leader. That's all I have to say. That you, you all understand that. Um, but yeah, so a different context, but a lot of the same principles we put in place. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Hey, Roger, you started some work programs for people. Yeah, we, yep, yeah. We, um, one of the African-Americans that I got connected with was working with ex-offenders. And one of his biggest challenges, of course, was finding jobs for these guys. So we hooked up with a program called Jobs for Life. Has anybody ever heard of that? Yeah. Is it North, Raleigh, North Carolina? Some, yeah, somewhere in North Carolina. Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina. So we just used their program, basically. So <clears throat> we were pretty connected with... Uh, Pittsburgh's a, a real um, foundation-based church, foundations, money foundations. So we were able to get a, a big grant. And so what we do, did is we took these ex-offenders that were sent to us and we created jobs for them in churches with carpenters, with painters, uh, contractors, and we paid their salary um, for six months out of this grant. So they only worked part-time. So we asked the guys to, to hire them for 20 hours a week and then they were required to attend the Jobs for Life program in the evenings. And the idea was to create a leverage for them so they now had a resume that they could take to the next job place. So we had gotten uh, $250,000 from the Heinz Endowment uh, people in Pittsburgh. And they were so excited about it, they were willing to fund it for another opportunity. They were willing to give us a half a million dollars if the Pittsburgh Foundation would match that. And they wouldn't do it. They were very, very secular and didn't like to do faith-based initiatives. So, so we, we ran it for six months, and it was very successful. I would say out of the uh, 15 guys that we put through the program, 10 or 12 of them did find jobs, and we didn't track them for very long as to how long they, they stayed with the job. Some of the folks that hired them initially hired them full-time because they were so happy with them. Didn't you also do some coffee houses? Or yep, we, we uh, were... Um, there was a nuisance bar two doors from the church that was 
doing drugs out of the nuisance bar. And so <clears throat> we started working with the Liquor Control Board in Pennsylvania to get them closed down. And so they had troopers monitoring the place, et cetera, et cetera. And the owner of the place, he was an absentee owner, heard about that. And so he said, look, at, you buy the building, I'll sell my liquor license someplace else. Because it's easier to, it's easy to kind of pass off the liquor license to a new owner. So we put some money together and we bought the building from him and we opened up a, uh, an ice cream and coffee shop and started hiring uh, teens there and rented the upstairs to a, a youth agency that was using it for office space. So. Leverage, always about leveraging some things and being open to what, I mean, we took a lot of risks. We, we couldn't have done this as a, as a separate church of 100, 150 people because it was a working poor uh, congregation. But we had started a 501c3 early on and one of the things I was committed to that is no one served on that uh, 501c3 unless they were part of our church. So we didn't allow the 501c3 to drift away from us by having different board members over that. So we kept it, kept it close. And from the 501c3, we were able to, to get a lot, of, a lot of grants. When we were, so we built five new houses, the first in that neighborhood since it originally had started. We rehabbed another six houses. Um, when we were doing housings, we were running somewhere around seven hundred or eight thousand dollar a year budget between the church and the and the five hundred one c three. Good questions. Thank you. Any more thoughts? Again, I'd like to hear some input from from you guys. So what what um, what are, what do you see as the the hindrances or the hurdles to overcome to do? And some of you may be doing. I know I'm I'm very familiar with what what Caleb took over. Um, that, that was started there, a similar kind of church in Beaver Falls. Um, he's doing a, a great job with that. Maybe some of you are already doing that, so I'd like some other people to hear about what's going on. Caleb, any insights which you would share at this point? Relationship, yeah, that's, that's a big thing. Yeah. You know, being proximate. Um, one of the things we talk about with our, with our people is um, the proximate relationships of just living in, in town that you're trying to serve in for for a couple of years before. And I had, the, I had the privilege of living in the town where I served before I started pastoring there, which is not always, uh, oftentimes when you're trying to plant, that's not the case. Um, so, so it's a little bit different in my experience. But um, yeah, pretty much everything, everything Roger's sharing is, is on point and it's all about relationship. You know, it's, I think one of the hard parts about it is, um, I, I, I serve in a very small city, it's like 6,000 people, work, but it's working poor, it's, in the, it's a post-industrial rust built, um, uh, city and so it's easy to the relationships are a little bit easier to make and connect with when there's only a few thousand people some of you are probably serving in very large cities and trying to plant churches and in, in, um, in large urban areas which is just a, it's a different ball game and probably the, the main difference is that's just going to take longer and more time and more relational capital and things like that yeah yeah for us it's all it's been all about relational capital and the last thing i'll mention is we do a lot of ecumenical services with other churches uh, which works for us. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, we do a, a Pentecost service with six different churches in our area, and we're the youngest one of the six. And so every year we do it at the high school, and um, there's African-American churches involved in that. And that kind of breaks down some of the barriers and the walls where we start to see each other uh, more ecumenically and start to see each other as a larger body. Um, so the ministerium in our city helps with that. Um, so I'd say if there's anything that helps with some of this stuff, it's those ecumenical services yeah. and how, kind of worshiping together um, in, in, in shared spaces instead of 
hosting our churches or hosting other churches in our space. That's been helpful as well. And it breaks down some of the images that unbelievers have about churches that we're all out for ourselves and we don't do that kind of thing together. And I, I would say in addition, uh, just something that came to my mind, you need to, to see, we need to have a more parish mentality. Um, Rufus and I spoke a number of years ago to the General Assembly on this topic. Um, and I introduced myself, I said, because I'm a small church pastor in any city neighborhood, probably a lot of you don't know, I, I pastor a church of 7,000 people. And then I just said, that's how many people live in a 10 block neighborhood of mine. And they're all, they just don't all come to church on Sunday mornings. But that's the mindset that, that we had, is to see that as our parish, as our church. Those are our people. And uh, we, don't, we don't care where they don't come on Sunday mornings. And I'd, I'd continue, which is, I always loved, I'd continue to run into someone and said, hey, I, I, got, I met so-and-so. They, they say they come to your church. And I said, ah. <laughs> I'm glad they think that, but they belong. They belong. Yeah. But that, that, was a, that was a nice thing to hear, though. Struggle of not get trapped in nickels and noses. Yes, absolutely. Nickels, noses, noses, and narthexes. Yeah, so how you know how did you go about you don't have much resources where you're planting. Right. How did you keep the greatness of the king, the scope of the gospel in front of you and instead of asking can we afford to do that? Yeah, I hate to oversimplify it, but it was by faith. Um, it was by faith, but I was also very convicted by some of the things I talked about that God confirmed we were doing what we were supposed to do and where we were supposed to be doing it. And so even though we couldn't see the evidence yet, we did have to step out in faith. Um, and, and we had a lot of people that, I, I give a lot of credit to North Park Church who had no clue about planning an inner city church, but they supported us. Even when we started doing some, some crazy things, they might have, eh, but they, they went along with it. So that was a big help in that kind of situation as well. Um, Bob Hopper, who was the, the pastor at that time, was just an incredible support. He and I had breakfast uh, just about every week, and it was a mutual thing. I'd listen, and he'd listen, and but he was a tremendous support uh, of what we were, what were doing and, and uh, led the congregation in that support. So having that support, in addition to just the faith, but having that support around you, uh, even though it didn't always materialize in financial things, was uh, encouraging and enabled us to take steps of faith because we knew we had people surrounding us that were praying for us. And so I would say that was a huge thing for us to do. They, were, they just applauded us a lot. Um, we actually had um, Dan's uh, parents were a part of uh, uh, the, our church plant. We had about six families from this fairly well-to-do suburban church who came and were part of our core group. And we kept them in the background. We didn't put them in visible leadership, but they were there and really supported us. And uh, his sister... Julia, after she got married, became a part of our church later on. She was a huge... How old were you guys when you, when you came down? I think I was like... What year was it? 
Well, in the, in the early, <laughs> you guys probably 93, 94, somewhere yeah, around there. 10. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we were the three white kids in the, yeah. in the, in the kids' ministry. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. And, uh, talk a little bit about that, though, Roger, about how you were reaching out to the community with children's specific. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Um, we started a one-to-one -one mentoring program because there was an elementary school right across the street from us. And so we went to the principal there and said, what's your, your greatest need? We'd like to partner with you in some way. He said, our kids can't read. So we said, all right, let's not, let's not just do an after-school program because that can get just a little chaotic. So we decided to do an evening program and recruited uh, adult mentors from North Park and some other churches to come. And two by two, two adults would go and pick up two kids at their home so they got to meet the parents or the mother in most cases and then brought them to the church. And we did an hour and a half we did some uh, snacks and some games and things, but the majority of the time was just helping kids read. We developed a little library, and so that moved on. When the kids got beyond elementary, we started the junior high program, and when that got bigger, we started a, a senior program. The, the number of kids dwindled as we went to middle school and high school. By the time they got to high school, we were focusing more in on finances and helping them understand what a checking account is and things like that. So it was a, and, and, and again, it was a one-to-one -one mentoring program. So three nights a week, elementary, middle, and high school kids were in our church from our neighborhood, all being mentored by other adults. We eventually got to the place where some of the neighborhood adults were starting to mentor as well. Again, all of these things, and all, none of these things will produced immediate attention on uh, attend, uh, 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 um, uh, attendance, thank you, <laughs> attendance on Sunday mornings. Um, but that's where you had to stay at it for the long haul. So. Well, and, and so much of what you're saying, you just seem like you are a missionary in your community. Oh, yeah. And so, as, you know, as church planters, it's like I've got to get a church. Yeah. And, and I hear you talking about it is so much more than that. And us church planters need to be reminded yeah. of how to enter a community as a mission. Yeah. Just like the gentleman next to you said, we need to, to kind of, I mean, we have to deal with the financial realities. I understand the noses and the nickels and the buildings and all of that. And, and I think most of you understand it's tough to get buildings today, right? Many of you started out renting a facility and then had to move to another place, et cetera, et cetera. I understand all that. Um, uh, when my son planted his church, they had a church building that had been utilized for community kinds of things, and they, they just rented a space. I said, man, don't ever give up that gig. So they had a church building that they were renting space for. Um, and had an office someplace else. So yeah, I think you have to address the finances. You gotta pay the basic bills. Um, uh, I think in church planning today, whether you're doing it in the kind of community we're talking about, we need to be open to doing bivocational church planning. It's, a, it's an unfortunate reality. Um, my first year of salary, now this was a number of years ago, was $12,000 a year. Uh, my wife had a job, so we were able to do that. So we had to kind of walk that fine line. Of what can we afford? What can we do to, to make things move, move forward? Um, so there's sacrifices to be made when it comes to that, the, the finances. Not everybody can afford you know, full staff, uh, kinds of things.
So yeah, it's, it's, it's keeping a perspective on exactly what you're talking about. Keeping a perspective on, on the noses and the nickels. Don't be all, you know, I, I don't know if it, how, what it's like today, but I hated filling out uh, the uh, church's, what do we call it, the annual, annual report. Thank you. I hated it because there was no place. Here's what I said. I don't know if anybody's listening. There was never any place to just give me, give me a page to talk about some transformed lives. Yes, right? Just, it just isn't, even if it's only an encouragement to me, if you don't want to read it, fine. Let me write about it and feel good about it. So I, I don't know, Tom, if you got any influence here, but. Uh, not everything. There are some. There are bits and pieces of things in there, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of wove a lot of things in there. I, I was really trying to get us past our tendencies to ignore our inherent sinful prejudices that we have, or at least even preferences. Um, we, we're, I don't think we're as aware of them as we, as we should be. And so that was our, our focus. But certainly... Much of the what we did was is woven through there. Absolutely, yeah. I want to reshape the question. Yeah. Because you're now a church planter. How did growing up for whatever number of years you were in that congregation? What impact is that? Yeah, it's a good question. My family's completely different. Uh, so my sister uh, is married to a black man. We've got, I've got two biracial nieces. I don't think that would have happened without New Hope. Um, my brother and, and his wife are very committed to uh, diversity in uh, campus ministry. Uh, you know, we're far, my card goes out to church planners. I don't think I can do it, but uh, you know, support 100%. And you see the impact that it makes in, in whole communities. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're talking about reaching families that have never been into a church building through so many different ways. You know, hundreds of kids, you know, probably thousands of them yeah. over time. And uh, just being able to see that come out of a, you know, a very suburban white area. Um, again, to people that really didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Or, why, Amen. Or, or why they were doing it, and they're still confused. Yes. Like that, that, that place, you know. So, um, it definitely affected the people that, that were a part of it. Yeah. Um, although it's also, there's there's definitely also a trap there, I think, with that sending church can think we did our job. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where that particular church is right now. Yeah. Thinking we've checked that box. Yep. Um, so. That's a huge, thank you for bringing that up. That's a huge challenge, uh, I think, in any issue like that, but specifically when you're trying to reach that kind of community. We sent some people. We sent some money. Check it off, and we're and we're we're done with it. Um, yeah. I just think the, the perspective. Uh, you know, you said you were, you were ten years old when you were recalling this experience, and and just how important it is for us to not, as we plan, to not ignore the fact that this has an impact. Maybe on our kids more more than anybody. Yes. It's not that it isn't impacting adults. Yes. 
but I would say all three of my children are radically different people than they probably would have been had they not grown up in a church planting situation. And that, that's not across the board, but I just think of it, it, it obviously had a profound impact on you. I'll say I hated it at the time. Sure. Because it took me out of a way Sure, from my sure. yeah. Yep. But God understood all that, and God, God used that. I mean, yeah. To me, that's one of the beautiful things of hard. No point. My, yeah. my kids were not thrilled to go from what they had to uh, the bulldog cafeteria, but uh, but it was impactful. Yeah. We actually had within the first two or three years, um, two of the families from North Park Church actually moved into our neighborhood, um, sold their suburban home, and bought a modest, very modest home, um, the neighborhood probably considered they bought the most expensive homes in the neighborhood, but, but modest for them. And then another couple that had been a part of the original group moved in. So we had three white suburban families move into our neighborhood and stayed most of the time we were there. So. Did y'all see subsequent gentrification of the neighborhood? No. No, we were not a... The housing stock, et cetera, was not going to be a community that was ever going to get gentrified. That's a good question because that happens a lot, as you know. Um, but no, we were, it, was a, it was still a working poor <laughs> uh, neighborhood. And it's one of the only, at least at the time, there are some gentrified neighborhoods that are mixed racially. But it's the only still working poor neighborhood in the city of Pittsburgh that's mixed race. Yeah. Okay, Roger. Moving, moving forward for us as as a nomination, because this is this is a lot. Most people in the room are, are core mm -hmm. to what we're trying to do for church planning. If we want to really be more intentional in this regard, what would you say to the church planners here in this room right now? I think begin to answer that question, where is your Anathoth? Where is that community that's underserved and under-resourced that you're aware of and begin to pray over that? God, could you possibly be calling me to go to that, that place um, that's metaphorically uh, in the Babylonian captivity? Um, just doesn't seem like there's much there. Um, and, and what we found out, um, I was, I was going to say this earlier too, the black community is not the church community that it was two or three decades ago. Uh, many of the blacks, especially the young people, but even the 20 and 30s, they're two or three generations removed from the church, just like what's happening in the white community. Um, so don't be fooled by that. Um, so if you, you go into a community and you see six black churches or something, for example, know that there's probably only 15 or 20 people in that, that church um, with a bivocational pastor. So I just say, you know, do some investigating in that place that you think maybe God's calling me to this. Never thought about this before. And maybe there's just, and it could be, it doesn't have to be urban, it could be rural. Um, it could be the working poor. Um, we have lots of places in Pennsylvania that's a, a, a bastion for the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, there's, lot, there's lots of places 
uh, that could be the Anathos. So I don't want to limit it just to the city. Um, but talk about and pray if you've got a spouse. You know, is God calling us to something? And let God kind of birth something in your heart. And your heart starts pounding a little bit more than usual. Maybe there's something there. And you need to, at least that's how it works with me. Um, um, and again, I encourage spouses to be involved in that investigation. Because when the spouse starts, you start hearing from your spouse. That's how I always knew. I was always ahead of my wife. And I knew that I was not supposed to move forward when I saw my wife on her knees. Because she was praying about whether we should do this or not. And so I, till I heard from her, that's why I always called her the other Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit might have been saying, but I needed to know this Holy Spirit was saying okay. And so you, there, you may have different ways of doing that, but get that confirmation that God's stirring something in you for a place or for a group of people. That, that's how I, that was what I would say. Could you just say again what you, the Anathos? Is that what you Yes, that's, that's a good question. I used to know that. Um, <laughs> It was, a, it was a town three and a half miles north of where uh, Jeremiah was in prison, and it was his hometown. But I, I don't remember exactly what that word means. Actually, I Googled it, and it was like God of Death. Really? Anathoth. Anathoth. A-N-A-T-H-O-T-H. Yeah. Anathoth. Oh, not Anathoth. Yeah. No. Yeah. Next time you'll sit up front so you can hear I did really used to know what it meant, but I don't know anymore. I just know it's, it was uh, Jeremiah's hometown that he bought the field in. So. Okay, even if you don't know what it means, why did you, what it's in the context? What's the context of why it's Well, like, I mean, he, he took God at his word. God had spoken to him and said, you know, commerce, I'm paraphrasing, is going is to take place at some point in the future back in Anathoth. It's not always going to be under a Babylonian captivity. And so Jeremiah was trying to give a, a visible, I call it a visible foothold for people to put their faith in and, and to put a, 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 an act of faith in. And so he, wasn't, he never saw the results of that. Jeremiah didn't. But he wanted the people to see as, as the prophet of God that this isn't, this isn't, that place isn't forever going to be under the Babylonian captivity. And I think that's the the parallel I am saying that there are places and there are people groups that seem like they're completely so apart from God we're never going to see it. Well, we need to go as a witness to the kingdom and the rest of the churches to say as Dan witnessed you know, people thought we were crazy planting a church in this working poor neighborhood where there was racial strife and in the 90s all the gang stuff was going on um but we wanted to show, no, this isn't, this isn't forever. It's going to be tough, but, but God's at work, and even in that place. So that's the parallel that I see with Jeremiah's story. It was a Levitical city given to Aaron. There you go. Prior to, to Jeremiah. Good, good. Okay, thank you. Can Any, I ask yeah. of the room, and it's not exactly on the cross-cultural... That's okay. Go ahead. But uh, does your presbytery support you in church planting? If so, how? And if not, how could they? Just just something that would help. It's more 
helping me, I guess. No, that's good. That's fine. You're perfectly okay. How did your presbytery do for you? Well, so I'm, I'm a stated clerk of the presbytery and not a church planner. So uh, that's why I'm asking for that. Well, I know what people think of you. <laughs> <laughs> Here, yes. This is the point in the meeting where you might want to go. I'm in the West, okay. and so I'm just wondering what does a presbytery do for church planners, and how does that? Give money. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that was a quick hand too. Really. I know. It's I, all over. I, I, I am so well supported in the okay. Westway and Pacific Northwest. Good. So we um, the. It was my sending church that came up with the language that we want to be the first step, not a one-off. Okay. So that's like, I think that's probably, a, I think everybody probably has that by now in the Presbytery. They give me eight minutes every Presbytery meeting okay. for a church planning update. They just want me to tell them. That's great. They're, um, they're coming in Presbytery to their sending church. So the World Outreach team opted to give up their Thursday afternoon meeting to let me field trip people around Port Orchard. So we're going to have prayer walk and I'm going to go meet in one of the local businesses and Whiskey Gulch upstairs. You know? Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, so they, um, they're interested in the stories. I have 13 churches that financially support us. I send out an email every Thursday at 10 o'clock. I have 375 people in our presbytery who pray at 1010 every Thursday from John 1010. Come still. Jesus comes to give life. And so I like those are just a couple of the ways that I, I feel crazy supported, and I can't wait to get another church plant going so that I'm not the only eight-minute update. Yeah. And and was that all worked out between you and Ed? Did you guys discuss that, or is it? Um, I think this is pre-Ed. Um, well, yeah, no, I guess it was Ed, and he just—I don't even know if he ever asked. I just kept seeing myself on the docket. Okay. And when I can't go to the presbytery meeting, it's a really good reason for one of our elders or an elder from our sending church to uh, to update everybody. And I try to give a principle from church planting. I give them a challenge every time. You know, a principle from church planting that would help. Okay. Help them. An old adage that we used to we used to promote was is that money follows mission. Andy, talk a little bit about Southeast. What you guys do in terms of that support. Uh, so what we do is just finally came to grips with the fact that like just a community presbytery is not the best way to go about it, and so we just asked the presbytery commission to be a, a commission to just kind of pool all the money and put a couple elders together and then let that be the team that basically finds the church planners, prays, prays for them, asks them to report, um, and then all that stuff that then we share at Presbytery every couple of months. So we get time on the floor, um, just kind of as a commission, you, you get it whether they want to give it to you or not. And so you just kind of take it and you use it and you use it for prayer and storytelling and sharing. Um, in the meantime, trying to like connect the individual church planners to other churches in the Presbytery so that the, the support ultimately doesn't just flow through just us, but more that there's like side-by-side -side connections that are actual partners that then bear fruit in other ways. So the good balance here is you're hearing from a church planter, but you're also hearing from a Presbytery representative who is responsible for helping people like Megan. And that's what Elizabeth is doing in Mid-Atlantic. So her, and other people, please jump in, but I want to make sure you get a wide variety. Of people. Thank you. So Presbytery, the Mid-Atlantic is multiplying into three new Presbyteries, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Our Presbytery was gifted $850,000 to plant churches. So we are creating a church planting network to reconnect three Presbyteries back together. Um, I've been organizing 
and we'll hope to continue to direct that. Um, we've gone to cities where there's not an EPC presence, and we've prayed and we've walked rounds. We've got three new target cities, one in each state, that we're walking and praying for a planter. So, you know, often you start with the planter, and they have a city, they know where they want to go, but we're kind of doing it backwards. And we're blessed with the money. It, it does say <coughs> um, So we're excited to see, I have time on the floor, um, half of my board, part of my board is in this room, um, so we're, we're really excited about what God's going to do on these coasts. Yeah. I'll pick you back up to my wife. She's a great thing, like, go to Greenville, South Carolina, or Myrtle Beach, and so she has actually pulled pastors within about an hour and a half, two hour drive of each of those places and brought them all in and we've spent literally the day walking the street, asking questions of people, uh, exploring needs, praying. And you can watch within the presbytery the guys going, wow, and there's, a, there's a sense of connectedness to it. It's not a mission we need to go out here and do. But there's the shaping thing that's coming into life. I would just want to say that John Ed Edmondson can Amen this. When I first started, we had this thing called the Key Cities Church Plan. Anybody old enough besides John and I to remember that? I, I was one of those. That's right. Yours, yours was a key city. Well, most of them failed. That's right. That's true. It did not work in most cases. Sean. Sean's one, Sean, was the, Sean was the one exception. Um, but what I want to say is, is it's because it was tried to be planted out of the General Assembly office. When I took over as National Outreach Committee Chairman, we pushed everything back down to the presbyteries and we stopped doing church planning out of the national office. It, it cut, cut back funding and stuff, but nevertheless, that's where it should be. The ideal situation is a mother-daughter church plant relationship. That could be more than one mother. Um, I know that metaphor doesn't work, but... Um, uh, and with some support, financial support from an oversight from the presbytery. But that's the best best case scenario. And, my, and the other thing I would just say is, so from when I started um, at GA and planning churches, we've come a long ways, um, thanks to people like Tom and Sean and others who are here. Um, so be encouraged from my perspective. Uh, we, we still got some work to do, but it's come a long ways from where we were. And I, and I think your question is so important because as, you, as Roger just said it correctly, so one of the things that our national team brags about is that we've never planted a church. Yeah. You don't plant churches nationally. Right. You plant churches regionally and locally. And so our our goal has always been from day one to be a service platform. How can we help you do locally what God's called you to do? We're not here to tell you what to do. We can share best practices as we know them. We can tell you a lot of mistakes we've made that you probably shouldn't try. You should try to avoid. But we're here to, to seek to find out what God's putting in your heart and to help you accomplish that. So whether it's a presbytery trying to figure out how they support presbyteries or whether you're an individual church planter saying, you know, how do I go about doing this? How, how, how do I believe I should tackle what God's called me to? We want to be that resource that helps. So now that I'll be moving into full time on August 1st, one of my goals for the first year is just to be to meet and, and learn who all the leaders are at the local presbyteries and, and say, guys, this is on y'all. This is not on the national team. This is on, now, we're here to help you, but it, this has got to be a priority at the presbytery so that our people like Megan are the rule and not the exception 
when it comes to the support that they're receiving, prayers and support, financial support, uh, being present support, um, because everything Roger just said is, is exactly right. Yeah. No, no question. Thank you. Anybody else want to answer the question about how the presbytery helps you? I don't want to gloss over that too quickly. And I don't mind hearing if it's something where the presbytery doesn't. Or, or yeah, if there's something could they could be doing. Yeah. Sure. I mean, so what would the presbytery be Alleghenies? And uh, <coughs> I mean, the presbytery helps me so many ways that I, I don't even know them all yet. So I, we have uh, I have four parents, right? Two of them are sitting here, <laughs> and um, and then Sean's church supports. So there's many church support. But we have four. Um, churches are part of our network, Beaver Valley Network, and we just launched um, this soft launch a few months ago. So the eight minutes of the Presbytery thing is a really great idea. Um, but um, but so, so much support. And uh, Mark DeJay is um, who planned at Selma and who I work with uh, weekly, sometimes daily. So um, great support for myself, the church plan, and, and my family. One thing I would say for church planters and the presbyteries, sometimes they unintentionally overlook the church plants. Don't let them do that. Push yourself forward and say, I need to give a report this week. In most of the cases, I think, they allow you to do that. But push, ourse push ourselves forward to be known in the church planning process. Especially if you ask us a month before the That's right. Yeah, give them. <laughs> the week before the presbytery meeting. Not the, the not the morning of, right? Yeah, the morning of is not the time. Yeah. Church planners are functioning that this morning. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Here's how not When I was a young church planner, and I had a very small group in Kirkwood, Missouri, I was assigned a presbytery representative that was to look after me and to check in with me and to see how I was doing and to report back to the presbytery. For the two years that it took before we became a localized congregation, when did that guy call me? The, the night before presbytery, and his opening line was every time without exception, hey, I have to make a report tomorrow. Tell me what's going on. It was never about me. Never. And I, and I didn't ever say, you know, boy, that's kind of hurtful. You know? But it was about a report. Yeah. Yeah. He, he wanted to make sure that he had something to say. So that's a bad example of how not to do it. Sure. Um, how that's a really good point. How a lot of people, I appreciate what you said. Allegheny's is, is one of those press areas that's you know, got a rich history in church plant. And it's not hard, but it's absolutely vitally important for our church planters to know they're not by themselves. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's one of the feelings. As a church planter, it's different. It's not harder or worse or better than being a pastor of a mid-sized church or a large church, but the isolation you can feel as a church planter can be absolutely overwhelming. Especially through those discouraging times. I know none of you have those discouraging times, but I've heard they can be. All right, anything, any final comments or questions? I think we're pretty close to... Thank you for being here. Sure.